you ever feel like you're going nowhere fast and then later realize that you've been somewhere all along? Or maybe it's the other way around. We'll try to straighten this all out as we take you to the B-side. As the saying goes, it's not the destination, it's the journey. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month on B-Side, going somewhere, going nowhere. We bring you stories of personal journeys, and we're starting in a Walmart parking lot. It's not the most scenic spot in the world, but for many people, these mega-chain parking lots have become a destination. Nearly 30 million Americans travel the country in those self-contained homes on wheels known as recreational vehicles. Dave Gilson encountered some of these RV owners who spend their nights roughing it Walmart style. It's Friday evening at the Walmart in Livermore, California. Inside the store, a nice old lady greets customers at the door, and suburban families push shopping carts through the maze-like aisles of clothing, tools, DVD players, and toys. Outside, beyond rows of minivans and SUVs, a scraggly-looking 29-year-old named Rufus Luker has just cranked up a portable generator getting ready for another night in the parking lot of America's biggest retail chain. For the past three weeks, he and his wife and two young kids have been camping out here in a 35-foot RV. And to hear him talk about it, crashing at Walmart is almost like a religious experience. My aunt used to drive trucking for Walmart, and uh, she was the one who enlightened me on, uh, before Walmart had died, that Walmart said, as long as the driver needs a place to stay, he's got my parking lot to use. You're talking about Sam Walton, the guy that founded the place. Yes, yes, Mr. Sam. Thanks to Mr. Sam's generosity, Rufus and his family will always have a free place to park as they make the grand tour from Florida to California and back again. And in return, Rufus makes sure he puts a little something back into Mr. Sam's multi-billion dollar empire. Most of our money is spent at Walmart uh, on their food products, um, household products, uh, toilet paper, whatever necessity we may need. We usually find it at Walmart. Although this isn't a super Walmart, the super Walmarts are the best. They have everything you can think of and then some. Well, not quite everything. You can't buy gas at Walmart. Yet. Sleeping and shopping at a Walmart every day sounds like an incredibly boring way to see the USA. If you've seen one Walmart, you've pretty much seen all 12,000 of them. And they're hardly scenic. The Livermore Walmart parking lot looks out onto a vacant lot and a noisy highway. But Rufus, who is something of a Walmart connoisseur, insists that not all Walmarts are the same. I used to think that, but they're not. Everyone is set up different. You'd be surprised. You go in every Walmart, and as much time as I spend in one, you do find all the differences. Are there like regional differences and stuff like that? Yes, uh, especially when it comes to clothing. Here it's all Oakland, and go back to Florida, and the super Walmarts there, they're all Tampa Bay. And so depending on what state you're in and what football team they have or baseball team, depends on what the store is going to be like. If that's what passes for local color at Walmart, I'd rather stay at home watching sports highlights. To me, the point of going on a road trip is to get away from places like Walmart. Rufus's attitude is more practical. What he really likes about Walmart parking lots is that they're cleaner and safer than the campgrounds he's been to. And most of the people who stay there are pretty friendly. Gentleman over in the corner over here, nice man. We do watch out for each other. I helped him. He locked his keys in once. 
because of my small stature, I was able to climb through a hidden passage hole he has, unlock his door for him. So we do help each other out whenever we need. He's talking about John Hoagland, a 40-year-old gardener who lives in a tiny yellow trailer nearby. Like Rufus, John heard about Walmart's reputation for kindness to campers. But unlike Rufus, he's not staying here for fun. Well, I lost my space where I had it before, and um, I heard from other people at Walmart was willing to help you out with the space. Like, you know, if you're tired or something, you know, you didn't have nowhere safe to park. So I just basically started trying to stay here at night, and no one's really said nothing. They've been real nice about it. John takes his trailer with him when he goes off to work each day, and he comes back in the evening. He's been here a month, and the store's management hasn't said anything. You know, it's their parking lot, and... It seems to work out all right. Do you have any idea of how long you're going to be staying here? As soon as I can find a spot for my trailer, that's how I look at it. But hopefully, you know, <laughs> that's all I can do is try to get back on my feet and then try to find a spot. Both John and Rufus are hoping to move on from their concrete campsites pretty soon. After all, no one really wants to live in a Walmart parking lot forever. For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson. Trailer for sale or rent. Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets Ain't got no cigarettes Ah, but two hours of pushing broom Buys a 8 by 12 four-bit room I'm a man of means by no means King of the road That sound you hear is a BMW 650 motorcycle. For Claudine Zapp's sister, it was also the sound of freedom, the summer of her first ever cross-country trip that covered 27 states and three provinces and clocked over 8,000 miles. The trip sounded like a great adventure, and it was. But Claudine didn't get the real story until a decade later. We decided that as soon as I got out of classes, we would go on a trip, head west. That's my sister, Carola Zapp. And this is her friend, Melanie Brandy. We just said, you know, we have bikes, we're going, you know, like it was just like something that we had to do. They met in 1993 while making extra money for college as cocktail waitresses at a club in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They also both rode motorcycles. And they were both itching to get out of town for the summer. So they decided to ride cross country to visit me in San Francisco. Carola was only 19 at the time, barely an adult, and she hadn't been riding long. While Melanie and Carola's parents seemed perfectly comfortable with the idea of the two of them jumping on motorcycles and driving at demon speeds with nothing more than their leather jackets to protect them, I was really nervous about the trip and didn't keep my feelings a secret. In true little sister fashion, Carola dealt with my concerns by sparing me the gory details. Until now. Ten years later, I finally convinced her to tell all. And I even promised not to get mad. This is their story. We didn't have a plan. We didn't know what roads we were taking. We didn't map anything out. I really wanted to go all the way east. I wanted to do like sea to sea. Yep, that's my sister. Going west by driving through the east coast first. Not exactly the most direct route. The first day of their trip started out beautiful and ended up badly. 
They intended to leave in the morning, but didn't start out till late afternoon. We take off, and everything's falling off of our motorcycles. About half an hour away from our house, our tent flies off, nearly hits me. My atlas fell, like, went flying off. Pages are just coming out of her atlas. One hit me in the face. Then my, of course, my saddlebag flies off, gets hit by an 18-wheeler. And we're not even half, away, half an hour away from home. We drove all through the night. Driving a bike at night after driving for so long, you start imagining things like I'm seeing pink elephants with polka dots. I, you know, I, I think I saw Elvis. I saw polar bears. I saw things crossing the road that weren't deer. And I just want to make it through the night. After that, Mel and Carola figured out how to keep their gear on their bikes. But their trip was still full of mishaps. We had goals and aspirations. We really didn't meet any of them. to hit the, you know, the cool motorcycle roads. You know, we didn't want to go drive through long stretches of interstate. We wanted to do this on two-lane roads the whole way. We arrived in P-Town late one night. This is So we went story. all the way to Provincetown, Cape Cod. And we get to this campground, and it's dark already. We set up tent, whatever. And then we drive up to New York and City and spend a week and probably all the cash we had in New York City. So we camped out on a bog. We head up to Canada. We, go we went, you know, bar hopping and found some great restaurants. And then we started asking directions how to get out of the city, and nobody spoke English. By this point, Corolla and Mel had already driven 2,000 miles and they weren't any further west than when they had started. Somewhere in Canada, we realized that we've driven all these miles and all these, you know, couple weeks, and we're a couple hours away from home. Yeah, so at this point, we're like, should we just go home? You know, we got, you know, we're about two weeks into the trip or something, and we're hating everything, and we're in bad moods, and we're, you know, all we can think of is, if we go home, we will be laughingstocks. Nobody will believe us. So we just kept, kept going. As they rode, they developed a familiar pattern. Mel would lead and Carola would follow. Then Mel would start to sing. Carola couldn't hear her, but she knew what song it was. I just hear her head bopping. Gonna get you, get you, get you, get you. <laughs> and that, that was all for me. I'd make up all, all the other words. It was so perfect for a tour, though, because, you know, we just felt like we were on our way, we're doing whatever we want, we felt really independent, really liberal, and um, really liberated in a lot of ways. And so that song was just so great because we felt really cocky. In a small Wisconsin town, their cockiness wasn't exactly appreciated. We're driving through the town, and there's a series of stop signs, and Mel decides to just blow them all off. And she must be going like 50 down the road. And there's just, the stop signs are crosswalks. There was this little girl, she must have been like eight years old, that was walking through the crosswalk, and I almost took her out. 
and there was a cop car behind me. I missed her. You know, I saw her. I mean, it looked like I would have taken her out. But I was aware that she was there, and I went around her, whatever. And I just see the lights go on. And finally, Mel sees them, and she pulls over, and the cop goes up to her, and he's like, looks at her plates, see that we're from out of town. He goes, where are you heading, ladies? We're like, west? And he goes, just get out of my town. And we keep going. I mean, we must have looked hilarious. Look in the rearview mirror to make sure, you know, if there's hand signals or something like that. Pointing at your tank meant out of gas. Pointing at other parts of your bodies meant maybe, you know, having to go to the bathroom. Uh, we crossed the Mississippi River. We got to the Mississippi River and didn't realize there was a flood happening either. There were some floods going on. We had no idea. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. You can't go through there. It's all flooded. There's a flood going on in the Midwest. We drove through the night down the interstate because we were afraid that if we didn't make our crossing that into South Dakota, that we weren't going to be able to the next day. Was it, were you having fun during all of this? Did this feel fun? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Does it not sound fun? <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't. Like, all of the things, you know, the rainstorms and all the crazy stuff, that wasn't pleasant. I'd say we were miserable and we were very happy at the same time. It's almost you go through the hardships and because you've gone through so much hardship, you get so much more appreciation out of everything. At the base of the Bighorn Mountains in South Dakota, Mel and Corolla found plenty of campgrounds, but they were all full. They targeted two nice guys driving cross-country in a car who gladly shared their campsite with them. A little too gladly. That was the night we had to pretend that we were lesbians because... These guys started hitting on us because they were pretty drunk and we weren't. And it just made things much more practical for us because we were having no, they're like the furthest thing that we would be attracted to. This was the kind of thing that would happen to them. After all, it's not every day you see two young women riding cross-country on motorcycles. As they drove on the smaller roads through the smaller towns, they sure raised some eyebrows. People would always ask us, are you, are you alone? And we'd look at each other and we'd say, what do you mean are you alone? We're, we're together. You know, but what they meant was, where are the guys that we were traveling with? It doesn't count unless there's a guy with you. I found that most people were really, they were more fascinated with it than anything else. I didn't feel a lot of negative response. I think people were just, they looked at us like we were oddities in a way when they realized it was just us. And we end up camping at the Crazy Woman Campground. We sort of buzzed through Wyoming. Sun went down and we entered a national forest. And all of a sudden, we start noticing white on the side of the road. Oh, so you can see the snow. It's right there. And soon, we are driving in tire tracks with about 10 inches of snow on the road. You know, here it is like, I think it was July 1st or something, and we're in the snow. We got into Nevada and we decided that we're going to take 50. 
It's called America's Loneliest Highway. We were just trying to get to San Francisco. You know, we thought our trip wouldn't take us quite as long as it did. It was time to drop the scenic route. My mom had arrived in San Francisco to greet them. Their deadline was passed, and they still weren't even close. They had to put their heads down and drive. Finally, they hit the California state line. They took Highway 50 to Interstate 80 and crossed the Bay Bridge. And uh, I remember us getting to San Francisco and, you know, got off at the exit, and suddenly we had a destination. And we had no idea how to get there. And, you know, because the whole way going cross country, there was no such thing as getting lost. So this motorcycle, we're stopped at a red light and this motorcycle drives by us. I said, excuse me, excuse me, do you know how to get to the hate? And he looks at us, we've got luggage, we're grimy, obviously out of town. He goes, follow me. And he escorted us the whole way. So we had finally made the trip. I was very relieved to have you there. And I, ha I didn't even know half of it. <laughs> <laughs> Why, well, 10 years later, I could tell you. <laughs> Mel and Carolla have traveled plenty since then. But this is the one trip they never get tired of talking about. We found the most wonderful people everywhere we went. And, you know, the country's full of really great people. We literally just kind of divorced ourselves from the reality of the United States at that time and we just kind of like lived in our own little bubble. That I think just it's one of those trips that can't be repeated. And we were still so na naive but in a good way. But this trip just really became almost symbolic of the fact that you can just jump on a motorcycle and drive cross country. Why not? Anybody who ever owns an RV should trade it in and get, get a, a motorcycle. motorcycle. So I have to admit, knowing the whole story did confirm some of my worst fears about the trip, but it also made me realize what I'd known all along. My little sister was capable of taking care of herself, even if once in a while it didn't always seem like it. Oh, and the one big detail Corolla left out until now? On the way back from San Francisco, she made the entire trip in five days, alone. But that's another story. For B-Side, I'm Claudine Zapp. You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. You're listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month, going somewhere, going nowhere. That's exactly what Caitlin Kim did when she went halfway around the world in pursuit of her dream job. In my early 20s, I set some goals for myself. At the time, they seemed perfectly attainable. My plan was to become a foreign correspondent, think CNN's Christian Amanpour, except on the radio. The one catch was, I wanted to do all this before I turned 30, because honestly, I had after 30 goals that involved settling down, which is the antithesis of life as a foreign correspondent. But plan A, getting hired and sent overseas by a major news organization, wasn't working. And most people who knew anything about foreign reporting kept telling me the best way to get hired was just to go overseas and pitch story ideas to any news outlet that would have them. 
So before my 28th birthday, I decided to do just that. I told my bosses I'd be leaving my cushy radio reporting job in San Francisco. I was going to take my meager savings, and believe me, it was meager, and try my luck in the rough-and-tumble health insurance and benefits-free world of international freelance reporting. I had the country picked out, South Korea. It's not one of the cheaper countries out there, but my parents were born there, and I could crash with my aunt's family. As for stories, I saw a possible gold mine. There are U.S. Army bases there. It's one of the last fronts in the Cold War and has a society that's this curious blend of 21st century and 1950s. As for language, I could probably squeak by, and if anything, my Korean would improve, which would make my grandparents very happy. I thought this plan was flawless. But it turned out my plan hit a huge roadblock that pretty much threw it out the window. My timing was all off. When I got to South Korea, the U.S. was involved in a war in Afghanistan, and anthrax attacks in the U.S. were making headlines around the world. As interesting as I found my feature stories about Korean life, editors just weren't biting. Soon, my meager savings was gone, and I had to choose. Go home and get what my parents called a real job, or wait it out. I chose to go home. It was disheartening and disappointing. And let's face it, I felt like a failure. A dream I had for years, years, did not work out the way I'd hoped. And to top it off, a couple of weeks after I returned from Seoul, President Bush made his Axis of Evil speech. I got an email from an editor asking me if I was still on the Korean Peninsula and available to get reaction. I won't lie, on a professional level, this was probably the stupidest move I've ever made. Personally, though, I look back on it as a great experience. I connected with family members that I hadn't seen in a decade, some I'd never even met before in my life. And while my story pitches were going nowhere, I went somewhere. I traveled up mountains to visit temples and even waded in the cold gray waters of the Sea of Japan. And how many people can say they've been in the DMZ and stepped across the microphone cable that separates North Korea from South Korea in the negotiating room? I might not have been breaking news in South Korea, but I was seeing far-flung parts of the world. Things haven't gone exactly as planned, but I've learned you shouldn't be afraid to throw your plans out the window. I turned 30 this year, but I haven't given up the dream. I've just pushed back the deadline a bit. Caitlin Kim is now a reporter in Hartford, Connecticut. She's keeping her eye out for cheap international flights. And finally, a story about a guy who really went nowhere. When Aaron Ziabrowski left New Orleans in 1998, he didn't know where he was going. Soon, like some surreal country song, he found himself broke in Texas. He decided to enroll in a pharmaceutical drug study at a company called Pharmaco, where he would be kept in isolation for weeks. He had visions of easy money and plenty of time to work on his art. But he found that there's a certain kind of person who can make it in that environment, and it wasn't him. The day of the study, you get there in the morning, they call your number one by one, you go into a room where with a nurse, they like look through your bags for any kind of um, study breaking paraphernalia you might have. Like books and clothes is all you're basically allowed. Like you can't bring a radio, you can't bring any kind of drug for anything. You can't bring aspirin, you can't bring Sudafed, you can't bring contact lenses. So they give you your scrubs, and up you go to this elevator, and uh, you go up like in twos and threes, you come out the elevator, you turn around like the elevator door closes, and it says, if you open this door, alarm will sound. 
Okay, there were like two categories of people other than, you know, I'm sure actually my group fit into one of them. They were like newbies and they were like lifers. Um, a lifer is someone who's about 45 or 50 and has been doing pharmaceutical drug studies, making, I would guess, probably, if you did them all year round, probably like $20,000 a year at these studies. But these are guys who just come out of one study and basically re-enroll in another study. One pattern seemed to be that it's people trying to like kind of get back on their feet, but they never really make it back because you're gone from life for a month and a half, you of course, or like three weeks or whatever, you still have to like pay your rent. So you get out of the study with like 2000 bucks, but you pay your rent and you buy groceries and you're like out of money again, so you got to do another study. These lifers have sort of ratings of the, they actually keep track of how many times they've done studies. Um, some guys had like a couple logs of studies they had done and the various drugs they had done and the various effects and all kinds of things. You were assigned a number, a group number, and a personal like ID number. And so you ended up with like this six-digit code. And um, you basically were known only as this code, like you were scanned before you did everything. We all wore colored shirts. You had a shirt correlating to your study. And you always had to prominently wear it so that you could always be identified as being in your study. And, you know, it, it actually became like a sort of team kind of atmosphere where it was like our shirts against their shirts. And we had the coolest study by far because our shirts were maroon. Lots of the people in the in Pharmaco I found to be sort of um, aspiring something, aspiring writers or aspiring actors or aspiring um, artists, although no one worked on anything in there, um, which you would think is kind of a perfect opportunity, even for myself. You know, I never, I didn't work on one drawing in there, which is very strange because I had plenty of, you know, 18 days of nothing to do, basically. It does seem like a large window to work on your craft, Although it just doesn't, the atmosphere is terrible for it. That's ultimately the problem, in my opinion, is that it's, it's uninspiring as hell. The schedule was we would take drugs every fourth day in the morning. That day we would give about three milliliters of blood 11 times. Then the next day it was four, and then the day after that it was two. And then you had a day off of giving blood, and then you dosed again, and you did this cycle four times. One day is the same as the next, and it, it, it's all sort of just progresses very, 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 very slowly. Um, you're watching the clock. You, like, are waiting for 12.22 or whatever your lunchtime is. You know, it's all, like, exactly portioned out, and you get one, like, four-ounce container of apple juice, and you get one cookie, and you get um, four ounces of noodles and one ounce of spaghetti sauce, and that's the highlight of the day. We played some chess. We played lots of weird board games and variations of board tournaments, chess tournaments, pool tournaments, fighting over television times, you know, trying to trying to secure a Simpson slot. They did, at least on two occasions, possibly three, take us on walks. You would get uh, chaperoned by at least two nurse-slash-guards, 
and they would walk you around the outside of the warehouse type white building several times. That was about it. Walking back in was terribly claustrophobic. And by the end, I was crazy. Like the very last time they went, I don't think I even went because I didn't want to come back in. For that three weeks, we were all extremely close. Like you, seriously, it's kind of strange, but you come to know their like pattern. You know what I mean? You come to know their like eating pattern. You, you come to know their like sleeping pattern. You come to know like their nap times. They're like, what books they like to read. Like you have nothing but time to talk. The last days were very, very hard. And like, I was so ready to go when, when it was time to go. It's like a weird kind of hell. You're stuck with the exact same people and you, you do run out of conversation. You do run out of new games to play. Leaving was glorious like the night before. We were all just stacked. And you walk by the office. They hand you your big fat ass check. And we went and had a hell of a huge breakfast at the uh, Mexican specialty restaurant, Juan in a Million. Oh, it was phenomenal. Juan actually comes to every table to say hello. Like, Juan actually came to our table. Juan in a million. Really, what I walked away with it from is sort of a ego crash, you know what I mean? It was like... If there are things that I think, sort of independent things that I feel like I need to be doing and need to be working on, that I need to just be working on them. And my life situation is no more responsible for whether or not I'm doing this kind of work. Like it's really ultimately just me having to decide that I need to work on these things. Because I blamed a lot of that on like I just didn't have time. Um, but then once I didn't have a life to maintain, you know, like I basically I was the lesson was that I sat in Pharmaco and didn't do anything for 18 days um, when I had nothing but time. Aaron Ziabrowski studies art and works at a frame shop. His story was produced by Gabriel Spitzer, who makes productive use of his time as a reporter and producer. Both live in San Francisco. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, Claudine Zapp, Gabriel Spitzer, and Peter Crimmins. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening. Music